Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and we're going to have a wonderful conversation today with um, Maggie Christopherson, who is an education coordinator for the Alzheimer's Association. So we're going to be talking about tips and resources and all kinds of uh, information. We are live today, so you can call in if you'd like and ask your questions or make a comment at 323 323- Eight seven zero four six zero two. That's three two three eight seven zero four six zero two. Now, before I introduce her, I always like to just give people a little general background because we're always getting new listeners. So, Alzheimer's Speaks was created because my own mother lived with dementia for thirty years, and I just thought that we needed other services, products, and tools, and different types of platforms um, brought in. Uh, to bring us together. And so that's the birth of Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. We are all about raising everyone's voice from large organizations like the Alzheimer's Association to individuals and families living and dealing with the disease, uh, to researchers, to musicians and authors and and so much more. So um, maybe your story needs to be told, feel free to reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com. Now, if you liked our opening music, that is called Clarion Call, and it's by the Mark Arneson Band, which is a local band here in Minnesota who I just absolutely adore. And you can go ahead and download Clarion Call on any of your favorite music platforms, so please feel free to do that. Uh, Also want to give a shout out to Picnic Health. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. It was something new to me, but you can actually join an important Alzheimer's disease research project in just minutes from your home. Go to picnichealth.com forward slash speaks, and when you sign up, you get $25. Now, Picnic Health collects and digitizes all of your medical records into one online account, so they're really easy for you to um, access. And then you can grant consent to share anonymized data from your records with medical researchers. And by examining these real-world data points from your medical records, researchers can really find out answers that they haven't found out in prior clinical trials because everyone's journey is so unique. And so, you know, sharing your health journey uh, can can really matter in this situation. Also, if you are caring for someone with Alzheimer's disease, you can sign up on their behalf as long as you have legal consent and manage their medical records um, in the Picnic Health account as well. So, again, go to picnichealth.com 
forward slash speaks and check it out and um, earn 25 bucks. Who can't use 25 bucks before the holidays? <laughs> That's always something nice. Now, I also want to shout out to a couple of support groups that I'm involved with. One is called Arthur's Memory Cafe. And we do that on the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. That is virtual, so anybody in the world can join us. We do that at 1 o'clock Central, so that would be 2 o'clock Eastern, noon Mountain Time, and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Also, I do a live in-person Caregiver Connect for Care Partners, and that one is in Minnesota at the Shoreview Community Center. And that is sponsored by Brookdale North Oaks. And we meet the last Wednesday of each month. I should mention Arthur's Memory Cafe is um, sponsored by Arthur's Senior Care um, as well on that. And then if you haven't checked out Dementia Map, I'm so proud of it. It's uh, been a dream of mine for 37 years. And my partner on creating this is Dave Wiedrich who is the founder of the Memory Cafe directories in five different countries. Um, What the um, uh, Dementia Map is, it really is a global resource where you can find not only 150 different categories to pick from, but uh, live events, blog articles, and terms, because Lord knows we don't know what we don't know until we know we don't know it. <laughs> and so it's kind of neat to get a little guide there. So just go to DementiaMap.com. Uh, now we're going to hear from the footbar walker, and then I get to introduce you to Maggie. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Introducing the life-changing Footbar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Footbar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The Footbar Walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the footbar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Footbar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Footbar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Footbar Walker. Well, uh, that Footbar Walker is something else. If you have someone with mobility issues, that is definitely uh, that is definitely a walker that you want to check out. It is absolutely fabulous and really helps uh, when it comes to um, reducing injuries, both to the patient and the one caring for them. So let me introduce you to our guest today. I am thrilled to have her. She comes highly recommended uh, from Pat Silva with the uh, leading age in, in Washington and uh, who who I totally, totally adore. And so any friend of Pat's is a friend of mine. And when I got a chance to talk with our guest, who is Maggie Christofferson, um, I learned she is an education coordinator for the Alzheimer's Association. But she also started her own personal journey with giving care back in 96. And then in 2009, she earned her bachelor's in social work. 
And in 2011, she started teaching caregiving for the state of Washington. And now, um, you know, since 2018, she is working as an education coordinator for the Alzheimer's Association in Washington and northern Idaho. So I know Maggie is going to be loaded with great um, information for us. So, um, Maggie, I just really want to welcome you to the show today. I know how busy you are and how high the needs are in this community. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here. Well, good. I always start out the show by asking everyone if they have been personally touched by a form of dementia in their own family or circle of friends. So if you wouldn't mind sharing with our audience, that just kind of gives people a base. Uh, we don't really care what the background is. It's just one of those nice things to know. Um, yeah, I, I have been. Um, like you said, I've been a caregiver so for a long time, and I cared for people with Alzheimer's, but it had never personally affected me. And in 2017, my stepmom was diagnosed. Um, and so... She's still with us, and she's still doing okay. Wonderful. Is she able to live independently still at this point? And she, yeah, she lives. Um, she and my dad live 10 blocks away, and um, because of the pandemic, I have college-age kids that live here with me. So my daughter uh, spends two, two or three nights a week over there, and then we have them over for dinner a couple days a week, and so um, kind of a family effort. And then she has... Um, you know, her kids that are, are pretty involved as well. So, so far it's been going okay. Oh, fantastic. I love that you're able to be that close. Um, when my mom was diagnosed, they were two and a half hours away, which again, to some people, that's nothing. Some people are countries and continents away from one another. Yeah. But, you know, when there's that distance, um, it just, you know, kind of racks at your heart in terms of how can you help and support and and adapting, and then when my folks ended up moving closer, uh, you know, I could just be much more active and, and physically kind of on site, you know, with the eyes checking, because what you hear over the phone isn't always what's going on in the house. Um, <laughs> is what Absolutely. So it's nice to be able to see that. Let's start out, because some of our listeners may be new, and they might not know even what the difference is between Alzheimer's disease and dementia. So do you mind breaking that down for us? Oh, not at all. And, you know, just to ease everybody's mind, um, a lot of people are confused about the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia because it's confusing. Um, and so the way that, that I explain it is dementia simply means that there's something going on in the brain. Dementia is not a disease. Dementia itself is a syndrome, which means it's a series of symptoms. So what happens is something's happening in the brain that causes problems with memory, thinking, and behavior. And dementia can be caused by 78 different conditions. And some of them are permanent and progressive, like Alzheimer's disease um, or, you know, cerebral vascular disease. But some of them are temporary. You know, uh, a urinary tract infection can cause dementia. Um, you know, problems with diabetes can cause dementia. Um, a vitamin B12 deficiency can cause dementia, but those things aren't permanent. So Alzheimer's disease is, is different. And if we think about our brain, our brain has over 100 billion neurons, and those neurons are constantly sending and receive, receiving messages. So they're communicating with each other so we can form thoughts and feelings and actions. And in between each of those neurons is a synapse, which is kind of like a bridge. 
plaques and tangles build in the brain when somebody has Alzheimer's, and they effectively extinguish those synapses, those synapses which causes atrophy of the brain, causes atrophy in that area. So Alzheimer's disease causes dementia, but, you know, so does 78 other conditions. So there is a difference. Yeah, I, I think that uh, so many people don't truly understand, you know, how how that breaks down. When my mom, <coughs> excuse me, was originally diagnosed um, back in the 80s, no one even used the word dementia. It was just Alzheimer's, and even that wasn't heard of very much, um, even in the medical, you know, field. And so it was a little tricky to diagnose, let alone try to explain it to the next guy uh, coming around. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, I heard a researcher at a conference about three years ago, she gave the best analogy. She asked the audience, she said, ask me what I drive. And, you know, nobody said anything for, you know, what seemed like forever. But finally, somebody said, what do you drive? And she said a car. And then mm-hmm. she just didn't say anything until finally somebody said, well, what kind of car? And uh-huh. she said, exactly. Saying that you have dementia is like saying you drive a car. What yep. kind of dementia do you have? Why do you have dementia? You know, mm-hmm. going to the doctor and hearing uh, a diagnosis of just general dementia, well, I, w- I would want to know further. Why? Mm-hmm. What's causing it? Exactly. Exactly. That's a good one. I hadn't heard the car one. And I, and I love doing the pause and waiting for people to kind of figure it out, you know, because now, yeah. now they're curious. And that's what we have to do is we have to get people curious about this disease. Absolutely. To, to start asking questions and to do it in a comfortable atmosphere where they don't feel challenged or embarrassed. This is just mm-hmm. kind of normal, normal questions, you know. Um, I mean, I remember when cancer first came about, People couldn't even say the word. It was the C word. Right. And now you look at how many different types of cancers we have. And I think that's going to continue to grow with dementia. We have so many different types of dementia that are out there. Um, and they're they're learning different sets of symptoms. And, and um, I, I don't know if you remember this, but when they changed uh, a lot of people's diagnoses from Alzheimer's disease, um, and then they changed it to mild cognitive impairment. And mm. people being diagnosed said, you know what? There's nothing, there's nothing mild about any of this. <laughs> you know, right. that, was not, that was not a good term. And they were really upset because their symptoms hadn't changed, but the category had changed. Right. And, and um, even for myself, I know people say, well, why do you, why do you call yourself Alzheimer's Speaks? I'm like, because that was the term when I started. And they're like, well, why don't, you, why don't you change that? And you guys might hear this, too, as the Alzheimer's Association, because there's a lot of people out there that don't like the term dementia either. So the terms could change. And it, it isn't so much the terms. It's, it's getting people to understand that in life we call a lot of things different names. And, you know, we have to get a little bit more fluid with that in terms of our understanding. It's it's not the word. It's the diagnosis. And more importantly, it's how can we help them? How can we help people and support right. people through this process? So what are some of the warning signs of, of Alzheimer's disease? Well, so we have 10 warning signs. And I don't know if you want all 10. Sure. But one of the things um, – Good. One of the things to know is that you don't have to have all 10 warning signs. 
to go and be, you know, go and have a conversation with your doctor. Even having one of these warning signs um, is, an, is worrisome enough to just go and see your doctor. So the first one is memory loss that disrupts daily life. And we all have memory loss, right? We all have, um, you know, slips in our memory. But this is memory loss that disrupts daily life. So it's a little bit different. Um, challenges in planning and solving problems. And we don't mean challenges in planning and solving new problems. We mean challenges in planning and solving problems that you've already been solving. You know, uh, following a favorite recipe or balancing your checkbook. If, if suddenly those things become more difficult, then that should be um, a warning sign. Again, difficulty completing familiar tasks, like remembering the rules of a favorite game or driving to a familiar location. You don't, those are memories that um, are intact. They are not lost. So when they are, that should be concerning. Confusion with time and place. And, you know, especially in the pandemic, you know, nobody knows what day it is. But it's not, it's not forgetting what day it is. It's forgetting what month it is, forgetting what season it is. Um, number five is trouble understanding visual images and spatial relationships. And this one's really interesting, you know. There's an area in our brain that's responsible for recording what our eyes see, and then it plays it back to us. And sometimes Alzheimer's affects that area. And so people will report to their, their you know, optometrists and their family and their loved ones, I can't see, I can't see, but their vision is fine. So that should be a warning sign. Uh, six is new problems with words and speaking or writing. And what happens is people start to lose the ability to name things. So they're losing the ability to recall what things are called, um, what people's names are, you know, and the difference between when that happens, you know, with without Alzheimer's um, is they don't recall it later. So it's not like, you know, I always forget the name of a movie I saw or the actress, you know, I liked or something. And then two hours later, I'll shout it out. You know, that's that's different. This is you're losing it and it's not coming back. Uh, seven is misplacing things and losing the ability to retrace our steps. You know, we misplace things all the time. The difference is we can retrace our steps and figure out where we put it. People with Alzheimer's and, and, and early stages of Alzheimer's can't. So they start accusing people of stealing things, moving things, taking things, and, you know, um, because they can't, they, they cannot retrace their steps. So eight is decreased or poor judgment. You'll see people falling for scams that they wouldn't have fallen for, not paying their bills, um, you know, just doing things that are really out of character, or unsafe. Nine is withdrawal from work or social obligations. And 10 is changes in mood and personality. And if you think about it, our brain houses our personality, right? It forms our personality. One of the most difficult things with families going through this is, you know, is there's no timeline of the stage of progression and there's no definitive answers of how it's going to affect people because everybody's brains are different. You know, you go into the doctor with cirrhosis, a liver is a liver is a liver. You know, you go into the doctor with an issue with the brain, it's going to affect everybody differently. So those are some of the warning signs. Again, if you see those warning signs in you or a loved one, it's time to have a conversation about going to the doctor. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, you know, and there's so many, you know, different aspects of this disease. And I think one thing that people don't understand, and I'm so glad you, you brought this up, that, you know, everybody is affected differently, 
it, there isn't an A, B, C, D list of how this is going to transform and um, take in somebody's life. Like, you know, we were told my mom had five to seven years. She lived 30. And, you know, in the beginning for the first 10, she was told that she, it was her hormones. You know, it wasn't dementia. And yet upon autopsy, you know, um, Dr. Bill Fry, who is his very renowned um, here in Minnesota, but around the world for his um, nasal insulin um, study, you know, he looked at my mom's brain and he's like, oh, my gosh, he, he had never seen a brain that atrophied or that shrunk ever. Wow. And, and he was just kind of, um, you know, at, at a he kind of gasped when he first saw it. And he, then he apologized. And I said, there's no need to apologize. And he said, really, Lori, he's like, this is exactly what we should expect if someone's been living for 30 years with this disease. He says, right. I've never, I have never, ever seen a, a brain, you know, that has had this much damage to it. And yet, you know, out of that 30 years, I would say 26 of those years, she lived, 26, 27 years, she really lived a, a pretty um, full life. It was the last three when she was um, really not able to do much at all for herself and in communication, yet we were still able to connect. It was just on a different level. And so, you know, people have to learn to adapt, to communicate differently. Um, we have to look at a lot of those nonverbals. Um, and, and we have to look for these signs, not only within others, but within ourselves um, and not, not be so scared that it could be this. Um, but, you know, look at it like any other disease when we go to the doctor. You know, hopefully there's there's some help out there um, with it. When you mentioned um, eyesight, that is so common, and yet so many people as they age, and I'm one of them now, depth perception changes. But, you know, if someone's had a stroke, which could be vascular dementia, their eyesight might not be right in front of them. It, it might be diverted to, you know, the right side or the left side. And that's their normal tunnel vision now versus straight ahead. Um, so there's so many different cues. And um, you mentioned the scams. I hear more and more of that all the time, which just breaks you know, just totally, totally breaks my heart. So thanks for, you know, pointing out those 10 things. And, and again, really letting people know this is when these changes come about and it disrupts your normal life. You know, it's, it's not what it used to be. Um, I, I think that that is uh, really an important factor, too, that you shared shared with us on that. Let's talk about, you know, early diagnosis. Can it happen? And, you know, if, if someone is concerned, where do they go? What questions should they ask? So generally, you know, um, if someone is concerned, they can go to their physician. There's a general practitioner or nurse practitioner and just say, you know, I am concerned um, about my, you know, memory. I'm concerned about my cognition, whatever it is I would like um you know, to have that mini status test that they give people. And, you know, once they give that that little questionnaire, that little test, um, and you also get that test with uh, your Medicare visit, your annual visit um, that, that people get when they're 65. So you can ask for that test. And, you know, if there's any concerns with, 
the results of that test, then ask generally they should refer you to a specialist, a neurologist, a neuropsychologist, a gerontologist, because general practitioners are fantastic, right? They know everything about the body. Um, but if I were going to be going through the diagnostic process, I would really want to be referred to a specialist. Um, and then the, the questions and the tests are going to get more extensive. And sometimes they do scans and sometimes they don't. I can't, you know, say unilaterally that they're going to do scans for everybody. Um, but, yes, this, de this disease can be diagnosed in early stages. And quite frankly, it is much better for it to be diagnosed in early stages for a couple of different reasons. You know, the earlier somebody is diagnosed, the more they have time to say what they want to happen at the end of their life, what they want to happen with their care, how they want, um, you know, legal and financial and healthcare decisions to be made. And as a caregiver, I can tell you, I've cared for people that have had decision-making power in, in how they're cared for. And I have cared for people that haven't. And generally, people who have some autonomy and some independence to make these decisions are um, calmer and happier. Um, the other reason is, is teaching caregiving, I used to see families just devastated because there was no plan for the loved one they were caring for. And the siblings would fight, the extended family would fight, everybody would say, well, you know, I know what mom wants, you don't know what mom wants, or the other side of it was somebody was doing it by themselves and they didn't know what their loved one wanted. And so they were constantly, you know, feeling guilty and second-guessing themselves. When there's a plan and somebody has been involved in making their plan, um, then nobody has to wonder. Nobody has to fight. Everybody can just look towards the plan. You know, making sure that you get that diagnosis as early as possible also allows people to plan, allows people to figure out how they're going to pay for this. This is a very expensive disease to care for people through. You need to gather your resources and figure out how you're going to do this. And the earlier you can do it, the better. You don't want to be planning, um, you know, what to do with someone's care if there's an emergency, right? If somebody has fallen or they've gotten ill or all of a sudden the living situation is unsafe, that's not a good position to be in. And then the other reason is, well, there's two more reasons, but one of the reasons is, is, is for some reason the medication that is used to treat the symptoms of Alzheimer's seems to work better the earlier it is given. We don't know why, um, but that's what we see. And the other reason is, is if, if somebody is diagnosed, then they can start getting involved in clinical trials. And it's just a benefit for everybody to get us diagnosed as early as possible. Yeah, I, I agree. One plug I'm going to give is for Compassion and Choices. Um, they actually have on their website, they're all, you know, kind of about the, the, the right to live, the right to die, you know, the way you want to. But they actually have a section there that is specific to dementia. 
And I, in fact, I just filled it out for myself because I'm updating all of my documents. And, you know, I don't have dementia right now. Anyway, it's not that I know of. And, uh, but I want to be prepared in case I have it. But one of the things I loved about it was it, it, it can come into play not only in dementia, but if you have a stroke or in a car accident, I mean, there's so many different things that they make you think about. And then the combination of, okay, if I have this and this and this, you know, what do I want? Do I want to continue to have, you know, life-saving efforts or not? Um, it's really, a, I think, a really well, well done document. Um, and you had mentioned, too, about, you know, getting people involved in choice. What's important to them? Have those conversations. What makes them joyful? Make a list of those things. Incorporate it in their life so it, it isn't... Um, it isn't forgotten about. If they have to move, make sure maybe certain pieces go with them, that they're not left or sold because they might trigger, you know, great memories for them. So uh, there's so many different reasons to to really be part of this and take an active role. And I, I know for myself, you know, with my mom living with dementia for as long as she did, I truly believe she lived as long as she did because she felt involved in her life. She felt involved with her family, her community, and it wasn't just everyone making decisions for her. Um, and and we, we really tried to be very, very respectful of that. Again, I want to remind people that we are live, and if you'd like to join the conversation, the number is 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. Maggie, I'd like to ask you, what are some of the things that family can do once there is a diagnosis? You know, because usually prior, everyone's scrambling. A lot of times people in the family are on different pages. Um, Sometimes after diagnosis, they're still on different pages. (laughs) And the, the denial kind of rotates. I found through family members from the person being diagnosed to friends and family in that close-knit circle, but what are some recommendations you have um, to live well with dementia and to support someone? I think some of the things that they can do is to first, you know, um, contact uh, legal and financial uh, professionals. So to get all that paperwork in order, and I know that sounds kind of um, cold, but um, it's, it's something that needs to be done, and it's, it's very difficult to do on your own. So I would also really suggest that everybody sit down, you know, with the person living with the disease that, you know, and, and, you know, you don't have to include the whole family and the extended family and the friends if that person isn't comfortable with that. So first have a conversation and see, you know, how comfortable are they sharing this information? Um, You know, and, and is there, you know, a timeline of, of sharing this? Um, So the next thing I would, would, really stress that people do is start to make um start to start to really make a list of who is going to do what so it can't always be one person doing everything and one of the things that a lot of caregivers um tend to do is they just do everything themselves. They don't want to ask anybody for help. They, and then they start to think that nobody wants to help them. But people can't read your mind, and you're going to need help. You cannot do this by yourself. 
So instead of waiting for people to offer or waiting for people to just, you know, instinctively know what you need, you need to start delegating. So if you have a child or a loved one that is good with, with finances or bills, that person does that. If somebody else is good with shopping um, and getting your loved one out and going and do something, that is that person does that. So there needs to be um, really dividing those duties so it doesn't just fall on the caregiver. The next thing I would suggest is joining a support group. And there are a lot of support groups. We have tons of support groups at the Alzheimer's Association. And, you know, um, sometimes people are resistant to support groups. But what a support group does is, you know, when, when your friends call or your neighbors want to talk about your loved one, there's there's really a it feels like there's almost a barrier that kind of goes up because they don't know what you're going through. They don't know what it's like to watch your family member go through this and what it's like to all of a sudden become a 24 hour caregiver. They just don't. But when you go to this support group, you don't have to explain it. You don't have to sit in a room and, and explain it. People already know what you're going through. And those people in that room, not only do they know what you're going through, but they are going through it at the same time. So oftentimes they become the best resources for, um, you know, tips and tricks and ideas and, you know, ref, re, you know getting, referring you to other professionals. So a support group for the caregiver is essential, but the, a support group for somebody living with Alzheimer's is also essential. You know, there are a lot of support groups where um, there's two support groups going on at one time where the caregiver can go to theirs and the person living with the disease can go to their support group. And now that we're online and we have Zoom, you know, we can find those support groups everywhere. But it is essential that that person gets support from people that understand what it is like to go through this disease. Um, you know, and getting as involved with organizations like, like ours, with the Alzheimer's Association, I see a lot of people living very joyful lives once they start to get involved. Once they start to volunteer, once they start to go to the programs, once they start to to really get in the community, to be in the middle, you know, it's it's kind of like, um, you know, herds of animals. You don't want to be on the outside. Those are the mm -hmm. ones that don't do very well. You want to be in the middle of it. Yep. Yep. That is that is so true. And support groups, I mean, I can speak from that personally. When I was going through it, that was the last thing I wanted to do. And the reason it was was because I didn't have any time to take care of me. And to me, I looked at it like one more thing I had to do for my mom, and I already had a long, long list. And, boy, was I wrong. <laughs> I, yeah. The way I, the way I fell into it was I actually was going to hear a colleague speak. And then um, he got sick and he didn't show up. And so here I was, I couldn't like leave the support group. So I, I sat in and I was like, oh my gosh, this isn't at all what I expected. And I will be back because I, I really didn't um, deal with, you know, I, I dealt with my emotions, but not, um, not as deep as I needed to. And I, I'll never forget the facilitator asked one question and she's like, what, she asked each of us, what do you miss the most? And for me, I said, I, I miss my mom being able to hug me because she didn't, she couldn't move her arms and stuff too much anymore. And that just really hit home because I had never, I had never stated that out loud. You know, I never took the time to sit with that. And it was just, it was profound for me to just acknowledge 
that something so simple, uh, you know, she couldn't, she couldn't initiate, but that didn't mean that I couldn't hug her. And it really made me realize I have to hug her more now. Um, and I, and I think I was, but I wasn't even, I wasn't really even tracking that, but I knew it would make her feel better and me. And what a simple little change that was um, to incorporate into my life. And I don't think I ever would have realized that without that conversation because I just had too many things on my to-do list to do. Um, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big component of um, all different su- types of support groups from, you know, some people go to grief, some people go to the memory cafes. I know you guys have a, a ton of different programs. And, guys, you don't have to just pick one. You know, many people go to multiple support groups, and that is perfectly okay. None of us own you. Um, so you you go where you get filled and get the information, and that might change over time, and and that is fine. Um, but you know, don't limit yourself thinking that you can only go to one because there are a lot of people that go to three or four a week because that's the only time that they're able to connect with others, and they need to get refilled, and that's kind of how they do it. With that, anything else that you wanted to? to add um on that question Maggie? i don't i don't think so i think you know uh the only thing i would add is is really trying to just it sounds so trite um but just really trying to take it one day at a time because we just don't mm-hmm. know we just don't know what's going to happen and these uh you know the families that i see that are that are surviving this really well is is it, they're doing it by just focusing on today mhm yep yep i yeah, I, I think that's the only way to do it. And then also to um, don't beat yourself up. I think our inner critics are really strong and they pull the whip out and tell us everything we're doing wrong. But we don't really um, sit down and think about what we're doing right. And I think that that's really important to acknowledge all you are doing. And even if it's not perfect, you're still moving things forward. You're still learning from everything and, you know, very few things in life are perfect. So don't expect life with dementia to be perfect. Um, that's a, you know, kind of an outrageous, uh, you know, goal to have because very, very few things in life are really, really perfect. And yet I find that a lot of people have that expectation, not even so much of the person with dementia, but of themselves as care partners. Do you see that too, Maggie? Oh, all the time. Um, I see it constantly. Everybody wants to be the perfect care partner or caregiver, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's not possible. Um, one of my friends that used to teach the same class I did, she would ask her students, she would say, um, she was from New Zealand, so she had a great accent. You know, she would say, is good enough care okay? And they would all say, no, no. And she would kind of lead them to this idea that maybe good enough is okay. That, of course, we want to give our loved ones good care. But you may not have it in you to do it 100% all the time. Mm-hmm. You're going to burn out. And yep. so, you know, asking yourself those questions, is my loved one safe? You know, mm-hmm. um, have I done, you know, what they need me to do today? Okay, mm-hmm. well, then I'm good. I've I've done my job. Um, the, 
it is very hard to be uh, a perfect caregiver. And mm-hmm. um, the caregivers I see that, that have the easiest times are the ones that, that aren't so hard on themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's Well, and when we beat ourselves up, then we're not at our very best either. And that affects how we care. That affects our mood and our confidence level and, and all of that stuff. So, um, there's definitely a ripple effect, you know, or if we're feeling down or anxious or uncomfortable, you know, as the disease progresses too, um, typically people with dementia say they rely more on our nonverbals. And they're, you know, even though we think we're covering it up, they're still reading all that. And then a lot of times mm-hmm. they they mirror those emotions back, you know, to the care partner. And then the care partner a lot of times, and I know I've done this um I don't think anybody's exempt of doing this, but we'll blame them for being in a bad mood. Well, no, they were fine until we walked in the room, and then they mirrored back really how we were feeling. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, all the all the lessons wrapped into all of this. Well, let's talk about the Alzheimer's Association and, and what all you guys have to offer, um, because you do a lot, and I don't... You know, there's probably a lot of people that don't understand all the offerings that you that you have at the association. Yeah, you know, um, there's a statistic, and I don't know if it's if it's true anymore, but you know, of all of the families that go through this, all of all of the people diagnosed, only five percent are reaching out to the Alzheimer's Association, mm-hmm. which um, just blows my mind. Um, the the first thing I would talk about is our helpline. So we have a 24-hour helpline, and it is not a crisis line. It is simply a helpline, and it's staffed with master-level social workers. Um, It's available in 202 languages, and it really is 24 hours a day. You can call at 3 o'clock in the morning, and someone is going to answer your call. And you can call for any reason you have. If you're having a hard time getting your loved one to take a shower, call. They'll have options. They'll talk you through it or they'll just listen to you. If your loved one is having a hard time eating, um, give them a call. If you need to find a support group or an educational program, give them a call. If you're looking for services in your area, give them a call. And um, so our helpline is not a crisis line. You don't have to wait until you're in crisis. You can call for any question that comes up. And um, I'd love to give that number if now's a good time, or I can also give it again later. Yep. So the number is one. Okay. So our helpline number is 1-800-272-3900. And it's just a wealth of information. So we've talked about our support groups, and there are support groups um, all over the country. Um, We have chapters in every single state in this country. And so um, if you're just looking for a support group in your area, um, I would just go to alz.org. And there are ways to navigate um, that website so they can find your local area. You can also call the helpline. Um, if you don't want to get on the website, call the helpline and say you need information in your area, and they will get that to you. So in addition to support groups, um, we have early education programs. And you already mentioned some of them are memory cafes. We also have 
um, zoo walks and conferences that are just focused on early stage, support groups that are just focused on early stage, and education programs that are just focused on early stage. And those are really good um, resources to, to get. Um, we have education programs. We have 17 different education classes that you can get on ALZ.org and just listen to the class. And it's, it's on things like know the 10 warning signs, understanding Alzheimer's and dementia, you know, effective communication, um, understanding and responding to dementia behavior, you know, legal and financial planning. There's a whole bunch of different stuff. And so you can get on and just listen to them. Um, or, you can go and search for education in your area. Some of the education is in person, not a heck of a lot right now, but we have tons of education online. And it is usually a community educator, which is just somebody that has been trained to deliver our education, uh, or it's a staff person. Um, and they just, you know, deliver about an hour, an hour and a half of information in 17 or 18 different um, subjects. And um, they're free and, you know, they're easy to register for. So what else? We also do a lot of advocacy. Um, every single state has an advocacy day um, with their legislation with the legislators where they usually go to the state capitol. Um, last year it was virtual. We don't know about this year yet. But we desperately need families and um, those who have been touched by this disease because, you know, the the representatives and the, the folks in the government, they don't really want to hear from us. They want to hear personal stories about how this disease has affected their constituents. So we always need volunteers for Advocacy Day. We need volunteers to help with our biggest fundraiser, um, our Walk to End Alzheimer's, which funds all our programs and services. Um, every single dollar goes back into it. And then we've got our longest day fundraiser, which is June 21st, um, the day with the most light, is the day we fight. So it's a great fundraiser. Okay. And I don't know if I've gotten everything. Well, that's a, that's a lot. One of the things, um, one of the things that I wanted to ask is you mentioned all of these great services are, is there a fee for these or are they free? Cause that um, might be something. Okay. Every single service that we offer is free. Okay. Um, because we I just know want people to have information. Okay, because I know that people are so stretched, and um, that that tends to be one of the one of the challenges, um, you know, for families is trying to figure out where they go from. You, I, I also want to make a comment on something that you had mentioned, and that is, you know, the small number of people who even know about the Alzheimer's Association or go to them for help, and I think part of that problem, you know, gets back to the clinicians and the doctors that aren't passing on this information. Um, I, I still hear that to this day. I mean, granted, things have changed. Like when my mom got diagnosed, when she finally went through her full battery of tests, um, we got a letter in the mail. They didn't even meet with us back then. <laughs> and oh we gosh. were told she's got the mentality of a three-year-old. Yeah. And so, granted, that has changed. But, you know, there's been studies that have shown that a lot of doctors don't even tell families because they don't know 
the resources that are out there. And, um, and you know, that would change the whole trajectory of the conversation. Instead of walking out the door, hearing, and this is what most people say, I've got my appointment, I've got my prescription, and as I'm walking out the door, they're saying, now go get your affairs in order. It's not very uplifting and no connections. Um, if if they just gave out, you know, the Alzheimer's Association or Alzheimer's Speaks or Dementia Map or, you know, there's lots of uh, there's lots of resources out there and we can all work together to get that information to people. But if the doctors would initiate it, if the clinicians would initiate it, I mean, that's really where it needs to start. You know, don't let somebody walk out the door in the dark depressed where they're going to go sit in their car and cry for an hour because they're so upset they can't even drive. And I, I hear that over and over and over again. And um, it's it's just, it's really sad. So somehow we have to get these uh, clinicians and hospitals to stop worrying about getting sued if they refer somebody and uh, and and pass information along. And there are a few clinics out there that are doing it well, but very few in terms of the numbers. And and people don't even know where to go. Um, a lot of hospitals and clinics, people can put in, they might hear about Alzheimer's or dementia, and they can Google that on a, um, a, um, a clinic or a, um, a hospital, and, and many times nothing even shows up because they're under neurology. And people don't know what a neurologist is if they if they haven't had one before. They don't really know to ask for that. And so, you know, it's it's kind of like this dog chasing its tail. Um, that's kind of where I feel like poor families are at in terms of trying to get help and uh, and support in this journey. Um, I also want to give a plug for the twenty four seven hotline. I have to tell you, in the last two years, I have heard more people compliments the help they have received on the hotline. Um, people who have been just on the edge with frustration um, or, you know, you had mentioned, you know, it's not a crisis line. It's a, it's an anytime line. But, you know, people have just said how resourceful and helpful. They didn't feel talked down to. They really felt supported and comfortable and much more comfortable to call earlier the next time instead of uh, waiting until that later state of, of frustration or um, nervousness or, or crisis, which can happen as well. And so, uh, you know, that's, that just made me really, really happy to hear and to know that, you know, the various support groups are, are you doing pretty much support groups online or is there anything in person going on right now? Some of them are going on in person. What we found um, is that a lot of people, you know, at first people didn't like the Zoom, but now, um, you know, I live in Tacoma, and so we have horrible traffic here. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people have found that it's easier uh, to get on Zoom, um, and then they don't have to leave their loved one. Um, They don't have to fight the traffic. And, you know, sometimes the weather isn't the greatest around here for driving. So Mm -hmm. that's been helpful, too. So we're hoping, you know, to get back to um, online or I mean, sorry, but in person. But we're still going to have that online option because we've heard from a lot of our 
folks, um, both support group attendees and um, our education program attendees, that they like it. You know, they like mm-hmm. being able to jump on. Um, and then there's still some folks that are like, oh, I don't like that at all. <laughs> Count me out of that. It really just depends. And I, I did want to say quickly that, you know, we're working very hard. Uh, we have a physician referral um, whole there. They're a whole group in, in the Alzheimer's Association that is working really hard to get as many physicians as possible to be able to hand um, the folks that they, you know, are working with a packet. Mm -hmm. Um, from the Alzheimer's Association, which, you know, lists everything I just talked about and also has this amazing um, booklet called a Dementia Roadmap, which Mm -hmm. is um, for Washington State, but it is an amazing, amazing resource. Um, So Mm -hmm. we're working as hard as we can to get that to just be second nature. You know, you Mm -hmm. you get a diagnosis or you get referred for testing. Here's this packet. Um, and hopefully, you know, um, someday that'll just be, uh, you know, what happens. Yep. Yeah. I know in talking with a lot of um, doctors, you know, many of them say they have this whole wall of resources, but no one ever grabs the stuff off the wall. You know, there's all these flyers. I think they're overwhelmed. And, yep. Yep. But, in, you know, if we can get this into their computer systems, um, where they just print it out because a lot of times they're not even taking notes. They've got somebody sitting there, and it, it doesn't have to be specific. It just has to be a general resource that they can follow up on because families want to be able to make their own decisions as well. You know, they want to be involved in that process. Uh, and that's what I'm hearing over and over and over again. So they don't mind being able to check it out at home. And I think there's uh, I think there's the attitude sometimes with our elders that, well, they don't have a computer. Well, you might be surprised how many are tech savvy because that <laughs> number has, has significantly grown. And you know what? A lot of them have kids or friends that are willing to take that on because they want to help if they're not able to. Um, so, well, you know, I think... go ahead. I was just going to say, I think as, you know, you talked about in early in the program, you know, as cancer lost that stigma, people were more apt to talk about it and more apt to really take their concerns to their doctor. And I think that's mm-hmm. what's going to start happening with Alzheimer's, especially just um, the idea of brain health shouldn't start, you know, you shouldn't start thinking about having a healthy brain in your 60s and 70s. You should be thinking about a healthy brain in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s, you know. Um, You could make a good argument that your brain is the most important organ you have. And there are things that we can do to take care of it and to make sure that it stays healthy. And there are are ways that we can monitor it. And, you know, if, if it's not feeling healthy, then we need to go see somebody. Mm-hmm. And I hope that stigma will go away so people will start to think about their brain health just like they think about their heart health. Yep, yep, that would be nice. It, and, again, it's it's nice to see that they're starting to do some screenings and stuff. But um, you know, a lot of those screenings are like the 10-question test. And I remember when my mom even was really struggling Um, We had called the doctor and, you know, asked him to do, you know, some more significant tests. And all they did back then was a 10-question test. And she had a great day, and she came out beaming. 
And, you mm-hmm. know, she was asked for colors. She's like, I told them a couple of colors they didn't even know. And she was just kind of strutting <laughs> around. And then it wasn't approachable. So no, you know, a person with dementia, just like you and I, has have their good and their bad days. And so they might be able to pass a test that you don't think they're going to. But that doesn't mean that it can't be reviewed again. You know, right. At, at another time. The other thing I tell people is you know your loved one and you know yourself. And when mm-hmm. there's a change in behavior, a change in how that person normally functions, whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever, mm-hmm. you get that little, hmm, that warning ping where you start yep. to go, well, that's weird. Don't ignore it. And don't let yep. people talk you out of it. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very true. And it's really easy to ignore when you're really busy because you're thinking, oh, my mm-hmm. God, if they agree with me, now i got to take this on, too, in my life, and I don't have time. So a lot of people kind of use that as an excuse to kind of be in denial and push it aside. But it's much easier to address up front. And, you know, have those conversations and do it in a dignified fashion than to wait um, Absolutely. You know, at, at a later time. And then sometimes you can be lost in terms of, gosh, I, you know, we didn't have this conversation or, or goofy stuff. I know even like with my folks, they um, ended up inheriting all these pictures. These, and it's like, okay, so now it's my job to figure out who these people are. I didn't know who they were because we never had the conversation about going through things that were important to, I know my mom and my dad. And I ended up throwing away a bunch of pictures because I didn't know who the people were. My brothers didn't know. Yeah. And, and you know, the rest of our family didn't know. And then I had, I, then I carried this great guilt and it took me a long time to even get rid of them. And they were taking up a lot of space and a lot of, and a lot of real estate space in my head over that and mm-hmm. you, know, you don't you don't need that extra baggage when you're going through this so you know have those conversations um go through some of those items because they're a great way to reminisce and to bring stories out you haven't heard before and um and just engage and it doesn't really make any difference if the stories are right or wrong if your person feels engaged you know then you be engaged and and listen and um, and you will create wonderful memories. So, um, Maggie, I can't believe our hour is almost up. I told you it would fly by. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and no dog barking. Um, Maggie has a dog. And I know. She was to- totally worried. So the the dog cooperated, but I told her that wouldn't be a problem because we're all working out of the house these days, and we <laughs> never know what kind of noises are gonna are gonna happen. I've had uh, snow blowers and leaf blowers and lawnmowers and all kinds of things, uh, trees coming down <laughs> that we deal with. And, you know, that's just an acceptance factor that we can't control. And I think that that's one of the, one of the really beautiful lessons that um, dementia and Alzheimer's has to teach us is that we're not in control. And what happens in 99.9% of our life is just fine. It's just, are we going to accept it or not? How are we going to deal with it? Are we going to be graceful? So again, you can get a hold of that 1-800 number, uh, the helpline at 800-272-3900. That's uh, 800-272-3900. And, of course, you can always go to 
Alzheimer's uh, website at alz.org. That's alz.org. And for me, reach out to me at Lori at Alzheimer's Speaks or go to our website or check out DementiaMap.com. We would love to hear from you. And maybe, just maybe, you'll be our next guest. So reach out and tell your story. Thanks, everyone. Till next time. Maggie, again, appreciate all you do. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.